episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I am speaking this week with regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And we're very happy to welcome to the show Judge Thomas Durkin, who is a member of the Environmental Division of our um, Judicial Branch. So, so glad you can join us today, Judge Durkin. I, I am as well, and thank you for the invitation. So we're going to talk today about, very broadly, land use in Vermont and um, Act 250's role in it. And I know Emily uh, brought this topic up because there's a number of things happening in the State House right now around Act 250. So I would love if you'd just kind of set the groundwork for us, Emily. Yeah, we're, um, and we are and we have been, have, you know, regular conversations about Act 250. Some of those conversations are about Act 250 governance, some of them are about Act 250 administration, and some of them are about um, the actual Act 250 policies. Um, And often a lot of the Act 250 administration experience of Vermonters gets blamed on Act 250 policies. Mm -hmm. And those three things all get very mixed up together in the discourse around Act 250. There are multiple bills every session to fix the problem, and I'm putting that in quotes for anyone who's listening to us on the radio today. Um, And so as we've been having these conversations and recently as a governance bill came across my committee, I was um, remembering that Judge Durkin, who lives right down the street from me and is my constituent, is um, the judge who rules on, um, I think, most of these issues and might have a much broader view that he could offer us in this conversation. Um, though I do hope we can touch on Slate Ridge for just a moment at some point in the hour, because that I think might be how you are most famous, Judge Durkin, these days. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> um, so that's sort of why we're here today. Um, Want to be really careful about the lines between the legislative branch and the judicial branch. We're not going to talk about the details of any of that legislation. If folks want um, Olga and I to jump into that at a future Um, on a future podcast with different guests, please feel free to drop a comment or a note or an email to either of us, and we will revisit the issue with even more guests. But today we are talking big picture. Yeah, so thank you, Judge Durkin, for for joining us, because I feel Act 250 and and land use and zoning in general are, are things that we all know about. But we don't necessarily understand, and we don't understand why they may be a positive force or a negative force, or, you know, it's always, I think Emily put it well, we run into to the process of going through zoning or the process of going through Act 250, and, and a lot of people just, like, throw up their hands. So for you, how do you, let's just start very broad, and how do you see land use in, in Vermont? Um, operating and and um, some of its history. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Olga. Um, uh, I've, I've been fascinated for a number of years about how we regulate land use. Um, and I, I think your comments and Emily's comments about um, the, the chiding that the process sometimes receives is, was an important focus for me as well, because when I first, when I was a young attorney, 
and I was trying to understand the process and I heard a heard some complaints about the process. It was interesting that oftentimes when I would hear someone, I would later ask them, well, have you been involved in zoning litigation or Act 250 litigation? The vast majority of people would say, no, I haven't. I said, oh, well, um, where do your opinions come from? Well, I was talking to my cousin who has a friend who, you know, so it's, so I, I felt the need for my own perspective to dig into it a little bit further and understand it further. And that's what led me as a lawyer to, to get involved in land use litigation. Um, I was an attorney in private practice for about 20 years. And I've now I'm in my 18th year on the bench as a superior judge assigned to the environmental division. I've been assigned to the environmental division that whole 17 and a half years. Um, and uh, uh, still enjoy that very much. I'm very honored to continue to serve the state in that capacity. Um, friends of mine will occasionally come up to me these days and say, hey, do you still like your job? And I'll tell them, no, I love my job more than I ever imagined. Again, I feel very honored to do it. Um, I, just a little bit more background, if I may, and then I'll get to your answer. I, I was appointed in uh, January 2005 to be only the second judge ever assigned to the what is now known as the environmental division. That was after that position was created in what was known as the Permit Reform Act of 2004. And um, it did a number of things, including transferring the jurisdiction over Act 250 appeals to the environmental division, but it also uh, tra uh, transferred the responsibility for hearing uh, appeals from other land use permits that are issued by the Agency of Natural Resources. There's some 44 different types of permits uh, that um, the agency issues, and we hear appeals on each of those, some a whole lot more than others. Some we've, we've only had one or two um, cases come up through the appellate process. Um, that jurisdiction was combined with the jurisdiction that the environmental court originally had, which was to hear enforcement cases from all the towns in the state that have zoning or subdivision, and from enforcement cases from what was then known as the Environmental Board, now the Natural Resources Board, and from the Agency of Natural Resources. Um, and then also, we hear appeals from zoning disputes. And zoning disputes can be anything from someone being upset because they think that that uh, deck that you're putting on your home is a little too close to their to their common boundary to a major subdivision uh, that may or may not require Act 250 jurisdiction. So we have that whole breadth of jurisdiction in our court. It's always interesting when people ask me about the discussion in the legislature about revisions to Act 250. Mm -hmm. I'll first note that I, I believe that there's been one or more bills pending in the legislature to reform or revise Act 250 since um, 1969, after 1969, when the, when the, when the bill first came in. Um, it's always been a controversial bill, a controversial law. And I think that's because it, it, it touches upon some very important um, issues. That is, how do we regulate what people can do with their land? Mm -hmm. Uh, more importantly, why do we even regulate it? And oftentimes when I, when I get in a discussion with the most ardent 
private rights uh, person about how dare you tell me what I can do with my land, I'll often uh, suggest to them, well, you know what, let's, let's change the topic a little bit. What if your, your neighbor found that there was some large um, uh, sand and gravel deposits on their, on their property right next door to you, and they decided to open up a sand and gravel mine? How'd you feel about that? Well, that wouldn't be right. That's why we have regulation. Um, And it's, you know, I think in the context of Vermont, which is, forgive me, all the Vermonters will be offended by this, but this real like wild patchwork of sort of New Hampshire style live free or die. Mm -hmm. And this like New England Puritan, we must control our neighbors. And we bounce back and forth somewhat wildly between those two ideas, I think sometimes. And so what we wind up with in some cases in Vermont is we have some towns like Brattleboro with pretty comprehensive zoning. Mm -hmm. And then we have towns just next door with no zoning at all. Mm -hmm. And what that Mm -hmm. means is that, you know, if we're really going to be thinking about how what we do not just impacts our neighbors right next door to us, but impacts, you know, the health of the whole community or the whole state in some cases, we need some state level jurisdiction on these issues, given the wild patchwork of regulations we have from community to community. Well, I, I think you're absolutely correct, Emily. And in fact, um, uh, because my, my jurisdiction, I serve on the environmental division with one other judge, uh, Tom Walsh, who's from Burlington. And we, between the two of us, we cover the entire state. Um, I have presided over a trial one or more trials from the environmental court in every courthouse in the state of Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, that brings me from uh, the Brattleboro courthouse or the Newfane courthouse up to the courthouse in um, uh, Guildhall and Grand Isle. Um, and I mention that only because in my travels, I've run into the very thing that you just commented on, Emily. Um, there's there, there are certain towns that have refused to, um, for a good reason perhaps, to um, enact uh, zoning regulations, local land use regulations. And yet sometimes when we have an Act 250 case up there, oftentimes the, the neighbors, even the town officials will sometimes comment that, well, we're relying upon Act 250 to, to keep things in check mm-hmm. in terms of land use. And I think to myself, well, geez, you know, it'd be nice if you had a discourse about uh, local land use regulations too. Mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating, mm-hmm. just yet another reason why I love my job. One thing I want to highlight that you just said that um, was sort of in the context of something else, but this idea that you go around to all of the different courthouses. And I, um, there was this podcast that was a spinoff of Radio Lab that happened, I don't know, quite a few years ago. That was about just, it was about the history of the Supreme Court. Um, and it was this incredible podcast. And I, you know, had really was inspired by this idea that the Supreme Court used to go around right. um, to whatever jurisdiction they were presiding over. And I think that's the fact that the environmental court still does that um, and sort of how much that situates you in the exact challenge that you're presiding over is a really powerful oh, well, piece of I, this. Absolutely. You know, the Supreme Court until the pan- pandemic hit us, was still doing that occasionally. They didn't do it in every case, but they would travel to different um, counties to hear cases. I, 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 and I think they're hoping um, in the not too distant future to 
take up that practice again. They, they have a special session at Vermont Law School. They've come to the Newfane Courthouse. Um, they've come to the uh, courthouse in Burlington. Um, and uh, I think that's a great exercise. For our court, I think it's imperative. First, it allows us to conduct a site visit uh, before the trial, particularly in, in appeals and sometimes in enforcement cases, we'll conduct a site visit the morning of the trial. And it, it is tremendously helpful to me, particularly if I'm, if I'm hearing a case in uh, Grand Isle, I don't know that neighborhood. I don't know that property. Um, so we'll go to the site visit at say eight or eight 30. Um, I, it's imperative for me to say to the folks, look, I don't have a deputy sheriff here with me, so you need to all behave. And I don't have a court recorder with me, so this is not testimony. Um, I'm not going to swear anyone in. What you're doing is giving me a context for the, the evidence you're going to present to me when we get back to the courthouse. Mm -hmm. And it's tremendously helpful to me. I think the other thing that's important, Emily, is, and I think you touched on this, I think it's important, even if a neighbor isn't, hasn't taken the steps to become a party in the litigation, our proceedings are open proceedings. So they can, they can come to the trial, and some often do, um, just to find out what's going on in my neighborhood. What is this all about anyways? And the best way to accurately determine that is to hear the evidence that an applicant is putting forth in support of their application. So we, I, I find that tremendously helpful. Um, when, I, when I first interviewed with uh, the governor for my appointment, one, one question he had for me is, well, well Tom, if, if you're gonna be a statewide court, wouldn't it be better for, for you to just be located in a central place and have the hearings in say Montpelier? Mm -hmm. At the time we had been, the state had leased property in, in Berlin for the environmental court. And I suggested to him that, that that would not, with all due respect, that would not be wise. How would neighbors to a development who have to go to work be able to stop in to their local courthouse and see, see, the, see what's going on in the case? How can they keep in touch? So I, I advocated strongly when, when that suggestion was made to keep it that we are required to travel to the litigants rather than the litigants traveling to us. Such a powerful piece. Like, I know that this is sort of going off of the topic of Act 250 and land use, but I think that's such a powerful piece of land use law and environmental law that might be something to sort of think about for other aspects of the law. You know, like when we yep. talked to Kelly Green about, you know, being a public defender, what does it mean to to bring context into the courtroom um, and how hard that is in the case of like really the severe mental illness and poverty that so many folks in the criminal courts have right now. And just like how incredible it would be for judges to have the opportunity to really like sink into that context a little, other judges to sink into that context a little bit when they're ruling on other issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think the other thing this is pointing out is we often look at land as this inanimate thing that we own or sell or use, like we even call it land use law. And yet land is a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it starts from the individual, but then you move out into the community, you move out into a state and it's all these layers of, of people's lives um, mm -hmm. because we are so much, whether we, 
want to know it or not, we are so much a part of our environments. Mm-hmm. So Judge, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, we have, we're talking about Act 250, but can we talk about like the zoning or the, the land use? Like what, what are yep. some of the building blocks that created Act 250? Sure. Thank you for that, Olga. It's, it, it, it's a fascinating history. I mean, uh, I think most people nowadays just assume, or perhaps don't even think about it, that zoning has been around forever. It's actually a very new, con- relatively new concept in the United States and even in Vermont. Uh, zoning in Vermont uh, was first enacted, I think it's just under or just over 100 years ago. It was actually up in St. Johnsbury. And prior to that, there were no land use regulations, state or local. If someone wanted to do something with their property, they did it. And back when the population was sparse and the homes were spread way out and factories and industrial parks weren't as prevalent, uh, maybe there weren't too much problems with that. What happened, however, is that inevitably there was a conflict when some land use was, was being completed. And when someone felt strongly enough that someone that that what their neighbor was doing on their property was interfering with their own property rights and their use and enjoyment of their property, uh, their only recourse was to file an individual lawsuit, either based in trespass law or nuisance law. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you that obnoxious smell from whatever you're doing on your property is coming onto my property and I can't enjoy my property because of what you're doing. And, that people uh, over the years realized that that was a very inadequate remedy for people who were being harmed, you know, and it, and this is an interesting discussion because, you know, often the focus in land use litigation is what is the applicant proposing? And that, in one sense, that should be the, the focus because the applicant has the burden of proof. They have to persuade the, the zoning board or the environmental court, that what they're proposing conforms with the law. But that's not the end of our analysis. Our analysis is also, given whatever the ordinance or Act 250 says about criteria, what is the impact of this proposed development on neighbors? And so you have this conflict at times about the respective rights of neighbors and others and how you sort out those rights. That's what makes this a wonderful job. Mm. Um, so to get back to your, your question, um, after zoning was enacted, piece by piece in, in Vermont, uh, individuals, towns enacted zoning. I, I can't remember when zoning was enacted uh, in uh, Brattleboro, but I think it was in the 50s, if I remember. No, I can't remember. It's something like that. And then um, those laws were were somewhat effective, particularly on the small scale of development. How mm-hmm. did neighbors resolve their conflict? Mm-hmm. But when Vermont began to experience major development, and this coincided with skier development in the early and middle 60s and thereafter, people began to realize that local zoning regulations were not effective, an effective tool in analyzing the impacts of development upon a community or a region of the state. And in fact, what a great book. Let me just grab a book I'd love to share with you. Dean Davis was a governor of Vermont. He was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And he was one of 
the first governors to have a serious conversation about statewide land use regulation. He has this great book. I don't know if you can see it. Justice in the Mountains. Hmm. And I recommend it to, to folks. But he was the first, but didn't wasn't the, the governor responsible for enacting Act 250. Actually, uh, when, um, when skier development began to really grow in Vermont, the story I've been told, and I, 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 I think it's accurate, is that a certain skier development in southern Vermont, and there's some people who believe it was, uh, was Stratton, uh, or development around in Stratton, and some believe it was the Chimney Hill development. That's in, the story I've always heard. Yeah, yeah. and I, I maybe just because I'm from down here, I think that I, I, I think there's more meat to this to the Chimney Hill version of the story. But Jim Jeffords was the Attorney General at the time. He went to the governor, and now I can't remember which governor it was. Maybe it was Dean Davis, and said, "Look, uh, you got to take a look at what's going on down there." because it did, the development's just rampant. And what had happened is that a developer had come in, several developers, and just sliced up lots, including north-facing ledge that would never be capable of uh, hosting a septic system or a well or anything like that. But people tried to build on those properties. And the story is that the governor was walking around with his attorney general and actually witnessed Ross Seward running down a uh, roadside ditch from a failed oh. and that's how he became convinced that they had to do something statewide because uh if it was chimney hill i think at the time wilmington didn't have zoning so it was just no holes barred and so the discussion became uh what do we do statewide and we could have another two hour session on act 250 but it's a fascinating uh, history of how it would it evolved well, and I think one thing that's sort of interesting about the power of having something statewide in this context is um, an individual town, if um, the development in that town um, or the ownership of that town in the case of some of our ski areas is so profoundly shaped by this single investor or this single employer, it becomes really, really hard for that town to, you know, at the scale that our municipalities operate to really meaningfully enact any regulations because of just all the dynamics of, you know, what it means to be a powerful employer in a town. And then also, you know, even if they're able to, what we see, and I'm sure you see every day is, and this is true in property valuation, just as much as an environmental regulation, the, a small town or even, you know, a large town in the case of Brattleboro, which is, you know, certainly a tiny town by any normal national standards, doesn't have the legal firepower in a lot of cases to come up against a major developer. Oh, you're, you're, ab you're absolutely right. I mean, I stood, uh, before I became a judge and while I was an attorney, I, I was asked to serve as chair of an Act 250 District Environmental Commission for about 10 years, the District 2 Commission in the southeastern corner of Vermont. And so that meant that our commission had jurisdiction over some of the many of the major ski areas, which happen to be located in Southern Vermont. And I recall this happening many times, but one that's coming to mind right now, I think it was at Stratton. And Stratton always made a very effective presentation at its Act 250 hearings. But the management would come in with 
four or five employees who were in charge of this proposed development, whatever it was. Plus they had two, three or four outside experts, a water expert, stormwater expert, some other experts, and then maybe, and then an aesthetics expert, maybe a traffic expert to make the presentation in favor of the application. Mm -hmm. Then on the other side of the room, there'd be the town who would maybe have uh, a town official there. Maybe if they were wise, they hired an attorney to help assist the town. And then we'd also have neighbors who would represent themselves. And they didn't have the money to have experts or wherewithal. They just were concerned about what impact this development, which was major, would have on their homes. Mm -hmm. And so that created a disparity. And if in the absence of Act 250, and I think this was the experience before Act 250, those kind of projects and their owners just overwhelmed the town and the neighbors. Mm -hmm. The neighbors couldn't contend with that. When Act 250 came into place, it formed a mechanism for, and, and it encouraged individuals to, um, to participate in the process. And much like with what our environmental court does now, the Act 250 district commissions uh, would conduct a hearing in the, in the town where the development is, is located. So people could come and either simply observe or speak their mind or be parties. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, the Stratton projects always, the developers I thought were always wise because in the meeting room, they always had some really nice muffins and really good coffee. <laughs> and I think they did it to appease the commission members. I, it didn't have a big impact, but retired neighbors in the community would always come to those hearings because there was always good things to eat and drink. <laughs> oh, Judge Durkin, thank you so much. We need to take a quick break to hear from some of our underwriters. So everyone here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, stay tuned. We will return in a moment. Welcome back to our second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts. And on BCTV, we want to thank all the platforms that um, showcase us. We really appreciate it. And we want to thank all our listeners who tune in. Um, because Emily and I love having these conversations, but we love even knowing even more if they have an impact. So, of course, you're always welcome to reach out to us at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com with any comments or questions or drop us a line on our Facebook page. If you are just joining us, we are speaking, of course, Emily Kornheiser, representative from Brattleboro, and Judge Thomas Durkin, and uh, we are talking about Act 250. So, Thank you for being here. Emily, what do we need to remind people of? Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests and none of any of the radio stations or TV stations or streaming platforms or any other place someone might hear from us. It is also not the views and opinions of our employers or our partners or our pets, just us with our voices speaking. Thank you. Welcome. So Emily said something interesting before the break, Judge Durkin, where um, early in the show, she said 
Vermont's such an interesting combination of kind of New England puritanical and then some of the New Hampshire live free or die. I always love, I remember hearing a, a person from Harvard, they were doing some study in Southern Vermont. I don't remember, but he came up and he says, I do not understand these Vermonters. And all I can, all I can call you are socialist libertarians because you have these kind of community ideals, but you don't want anyone telling you what to do. And I, I love that, but it also made me think a little bit of Act 250 because, um, you know, we have things like zoning, which are kind of a, a list and a cut and dry and, and a, a practical way to move forward. But then we have Act 250, which seems a lot more, so a, a lot more about community ideals and our vision for us as a state seems more wrapped up in Act 250. Is is that your experience um, of, of the kind of the difference between zoning and Act 250? Yes, it is. I mean, if you compared the zoning bylaws of individual towns, and I'm trying to recall, I think there's, there's 268 municipal entities in Vermont. Uh, 206 of them, if I recall right, have zoning or some form of land use regulations. Those land use regulations can be anything from about 25 pages thick, very sparse, to something like what Bradford has, or even more so, if you look at the comprehensive development ordinance in, in the city of Burlington, it's a six ring binder back when they used to give it to us in paper. And it's very comprehensive. And in fact, it, many of the criteria in the Burlington regulations mirror several of the criteria in Act 250. Mm -hmm. But even in that instance, there's not the breadth in zoning generally, in zoning regulations generally, that you find in Act 250. Act 250, even from its, its birth, the theory was we have to set out criteria by which development should be judged. And often you'll hear people refer to the 10 criteria of Act 250. And it's very, it's what you would think it would be. It's uh, impact upon uh, uh, water resources or wastewater needs to traffic, to sound, to noise pollution and the like. But the 10 criteria is a little bit of a misnomer because there's sub-criteria. Uh, if I remember right, there's, there's really 36 different types of criteria that an Act 250 applicant can review, can, can be reviewed on, rather. But uh, thankfully, not all projects have any impact under many of those criteria. And in, in particular, when, when an Act 250 application gets appealed to our court, it's often that there are only five or six of those criteria that are really at issue. Mm -hmm. Traffic, uh, water pollution, uh, stormwater runoff, impact upon agricultural soils and the like. Now, when you get a major development, like um, years ago, we reviewed an, an application for a Walmart up in, Saint up in St. Albans. I think they touched on just about all those criteria. Mm -hmm. But even mm -hmm. in the cases where there, we only... Can I just add a little detail for people sure. to sort of um, oh, sure. tangible for a second? So my neighbor built a house that was too tall. I don't think he knew it was too tall. And um, 
Fortunately, I was friends with the planning director at the time. So he came over to my house and drove past down the dirt road, my neighbor who built oh, dear. Um, I don't think I've ever told my neighbor it's my fault that someone found out his house was too high. So if he's listening, I'm so sorry, Dan. But the <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting because in that case, it was town zoning ordinances that were being um, violated by accidentally. Um, but there was no Act 250 piece of him building his own house on his own land whatsoever. And so I think that's sort of an interesting, um, I think often people blame anything that's keeping them from doing exactly what they want to do on their land on Act 250, but it's actually like this real, there, there are layers, there are a lot of layers there on how we do these things. I think that's a very important point, uh, Emily. And, you know, once I'm, there is, just to be clear, there's no criteria in Act 250 that specifically limits the height of a building. Hmm. There is an aesthetic impact criteria in Act 250 under 8A uh, that, it, that, asked whether the proposed project has an undue adverse impact on the aesthetics of the area or the wildlife of the area and the like. So I think in, in the instance you suggest, uh, Emily, it really, to, to have a proper regulation of that kind of development and the impact upon neighbors, you have to have both zoning and Act 250. Mm-hmm. Now, your, your point remind me of something that I wanted to make clear because it's very important and not often uh, understood. Act 250, regu- in, in the shorthand, Act 250 regulates major development. The consequence of that is that there is a lot of development that goes on in Vermont that isn't governed by Act 250. Mm-hmm. And there's some, in our court, oftentimes the issue that people are fighting over it has to do with whether Act 250 pertains to the development or not, because there's specific mm-hmm provisions in the statute. But it really, I think, again, the shorthand is that Act 250 only governs major development. I'll give you an example can I, of that. Can I ask you a question about that before you give sure. an example? So um, before the break, you were talking about sort of the history of Act 250 and how much this was um, kicked off by major ski area development. And Olga and I have spent wow, so many of our episodes talking about ski areas and their impact on the economy of the state and the culture of the state and all these things. But I think it's, you know, given the really like massive industrial pollution that we had up and down the Connecticut River and throughout Vermont for a period of time, I think it's really interesting that it was the ski area development and not commercial development, like not um, manufacturing development that Mm -hmm. kicked off 250. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, like, was I it just the decade if, and the vibe in the world? Yeah, if you're talking about the um, power generating facilities and the mills and such that operated along the Connecticut River, one reason that Vermont didn't act on that, I think, is it's that those facilities oftentimes are not in Vermont. The state boundary is the high watermark of the Connecticut River on the Vermont side. Hmm. So, New Hampshire governs many of the power generating facilities that are the the facility itself is perhaps located located in Vermont but the power that is the the generator the turbine but the dam and the such is all in New Hampshire so we wouldn't have control over that and you know I think also Act 250 was a sign of the times you know in one sense it Ski area development, and it, it, it was just 
it came at a time when people were more environmentally conscious. Mm-hmm. And of course, ski area development didn't really cause the concerns that people had. It's not the ski area itself. It's all the development around the ski area. I mean, I, I worked in Dover as an attorney for about seven or eight years before I became a judge, as well as having an office in Brattleboro. And I remember someone saying to me that if you counted the pillows in Dover, it's something like 30,000 people could live in Dover if all places were occupied. Love the idea of counting the pillows. That like thrills me to no end. Thank you. Well, it's funny. It comes from my training about uh, the regulation of um, wastewater treatment. You count the Mm -hmm. pillows. You don't count the homes. You count the pillows. Mm -hmm. You count the bedrooms or pillows. Yeah. But in, of course, the, in the off season, the population in Dover, I don't know what it is anymore. It's maybe, I think it's less than 2000 people. That, yeah, um, I'm not sure. So numbers, I, but yes, one that, other that thing difference. I just wanted to mention, Olga, just before the break referenced a writing that I shared with you from Paul Gillies, who's an historian and attorney from Montpelier. And he, the, that piece he wrote, which was very fascinating. He did it on the, advent of the 40th anniversary of Act 250 back in September of 2009. And if anyone wishes to receive a copy of that, I'd be happy to send it to you. You can uh, email me at my state email address, thomas.durkin at vermont.gov, and I'd be happy to share it with you. But he did a fascinating history of Act 250 in commemorating its 40th anniversary. Yes. So before we get back into substance, I need to know, is that a Marlboro College beer stein behind you, Judge Durkin? Yes, it is. Well, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is, because I'm, I'm a graduate of Marlboro College. I don't I'm think I knew graduate. that. Oh, you didn't know that? I don't think I did. Yeah, you're, you're a graduate I'm of Marlboro College. I'm also a Marlboro College graduate. That I, is how I got to this blessed place. I, I actually served as a trust a member of the Board of Trustees for about 10 years. Oh, that was Back so 20 years ago or so. Yep. I, I still have fond memories of being there. I, uh, I, I value the education that I got there very much. I, I think it led to my uh, law school career and my legal career. Me too. So thank you for that little, yep, sure. little beer stein memory back there. It's probably got dust on it because I don't think I've used any of these for a long time. No, they're not very convenient to drink out of in my yeah, right, experience. Right. Yeah, I, We don't have all that much time left. And I really, you know, I was very fascinated to read um, coverage of everything that happened with the Banyan case um, and Slate Ridge. And because, you know, as a legislator, when people are scared, I get emails about it. And so, you know, we have this like very public, really intense white supremacist training ground happening in Vermont and people are um, emailing me about it. And I don't want a white supremacist training ground in, you know, Vermont. And so I'm trying to do my duty to do something about it. I'm just sort of, this was a, you know, last year, maybe two years ago, we actually as legislators receive um, sort of regular updates from the state like FBI partnership about the levels of white supremacy in Vermont and sort of any ongoing actions about that, which is terrifying. I don't really recommend getting briefings like that. But um, in sort of all that context to see that the AG's office couldn't do anything, that we, you know, we, uh, there were so many people who felt the AG's office couldn't do anything. 
none of us could really come up with like what even a statute would do that could do anything about this really terrifying thing that was um, concerning to neighbors and, you know, throughout the state. And then to see that, like what finally sort of shuts down this incredibly problematic relationship between, a, you know, a resident and the town and the whole state that it's a piece of environmental law was just like blew my mind. And so um, I would love, you know, I know you can't tell us all of the details of anything, but I would just love your thoughts on it. Well, let me say a couple of things. For, first, I, I really have to limit my comments to what's happened in the past, mm -hmm. because actually, even though the case is already over, and by that, I mean, we rendered a decision in the case of the town of Paulette v. Daniel Bonnier, he disagreed with that decision. He appealed it to the Vermont Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And about a year ago, I think, uh, the Vermont Supreme Court issued its decision affirming our judgment against Mr. Bonnier. You'd think that'd be the end of it, but it's not. Because the town has brought a post-judgment action against Mr. Bonnier for contempt. The town alleges uh, that um, he has not satisfied the directions provided in the judgment order. We have a hearing scheduled on that motion for actually next Monday. And so, and I'm presiding over that, so I cannot uh, comment, of course, at all on that matter. I will make one comment in the on the, the merits hearing that happened two years ago, mm -hmm. because it's of interest for what you said. In that merits hearing, the term white supremacist never came up. Yeah. The term Second Amendment, I don't think ever came up. Namely, that was a zoning case, or rather, not a zoning appeal. It was a zoning enforcement case that the town brought to enforce its zoning regulations. And it was, uh, uh, we, we all had to remain disciplined to focus on the legal issues that we had the jurisdiction to hear, yeah. which was the zoning violation claims. And that's what we limited our decision to. And that's where it stands. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> we need to, to head out, I know, because Emily has to get to a meeting. But before we do that, Judge Durkin, I just want to touch base. You know, we talked about the ideals in Act 250. And I would love if you could sum them up for us as far as the type of Vermont or the type of environment in Vermont, it was, it was set out to um, protect. Mm -hmm. Act 250 does, has no provision that prohibits development. And I think that's one thing that some people sometimes forget. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's merely asking an applicant to show how their proposed development might impact others. And isn't that what we want our laws to do to take before allowing a development to go forward. Let's get a sense of how it's going to have an impact on the people that that are in its neighborhood. You know, I remember back when I was part of the Act 250 Commission. You know, we'd get statistics each quarter, each year. A very important statistics I always thought of is that the vast majority of Act 250 applications are granted. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of those applications that are granted go forward without an appeal. When I first started, there were, I think there were like 35 appeals 
uh, of Act 250 approvals presented to our court. At that time, we probably had three or 300 or 350 zoning cases. So it was a small part of our docket. Now, our docket's changed, but right now, this past year, there were only 10 appeals of Act 250 determinations. And in the legislation that's being discussed right now, it's important to keep in mind that, as I understand it, um, any suggestion about changing the jurisdiction over who adjudicates Act 250 appeals would only concern Act 250 appeals. The Environmental mm-hmm. Division would still continue to hear zoning appeals, enforcement cases, A&R appeals. We also hear claims under the Federal Clean Water and Clean Air Act, that we have concurrent jurisdiction with the federal court in that. So those are just some points. And I, I know we're running short of time. So, Thank you, Judge Dur- Durkin. And yes, we know Emily needs to run to uh, her committee meeting. So I'm just going to sign off and say thank you, Judge Durkin. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, all our listeners. And we will be back on Friday next week on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Take care. Bye.